0: Well, I bid you welcome again and ask that you would turn with me in your Bibles to the third chapter of Ephesians, and we will begin in verse 7. You can find it in the navy blue Bibles that are in your pew on page 1160. In case you forgot, we started chapter 3 last Sunday, made it to verse 6, and this Sunday we are proceeding Uh, from verse 7 and then as i said earlier after this we'll pause ephesians uh do the the advent christmas series and then we'll come back i think just at the end of december once advent is concluded so if you'll join me here at at verse 7 the apostle paul says of this gospel i was made a minister according to the gift of god's grace which was given me by the working of his power to me in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he had realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering, which is your glory. What you've just heard is the perfect, infallible, inerrant Word of God before which we can only hear with faith and tremble. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And again we say, thanks be to God. And so, um, this part of Ephesians 3, Paul says some really remarkable things. And this is, I think this is true of most sermons, but, but this one, uh, especially, I've, I've just been excited to get, uh, to get into it with you. Um, and so, let's begin then. Some of you might be aware that one of the marks of what I would call the sort of the, the, the spirit of the age, and uh, uh, historically speaking, the, the kind of moment we're in, which philosophically has been called postmodernism, one of the aspects of that spirit of our age is a distrust of certainty. That is, our age sees certainty about certain things as a vice, and exalts, exalts doubt about certain things as a virtue. What G.K. Chesterton observed in 1908 in in his book, Orthodoxy, is even more true today, I think. He said that we're taught to be certain of ourselves and doubtful about God. When in fact, it should be the opposite. We should be doubtful about ourselves and certain about God. But today we're told you should be certain of your own self, your own sense of identity, your own sense of truth that's delivered by your own experiences And you should be doubtful about matters of faith, religion, spirituality, etc. When in actuality, it ought to be the reverse. You should be quite willing to doubt the meaning of your own experiences. And be certain, on the other hand, about what God has said. When Paul puts on display... Excuse me, what Paul puts on display here in Ephesians 3 is an absolute certainty about what God has done and about what God has accomplished. That still has such a weight of glory and mystery to it that it leaves us certain about what God has said and done in Christ and doubtful about any kind of human reason that would object to it. I trust many of you remember. will remember again that, that last week when we focused on verses 1-6, through six, Paul talked about God's work to reveal the mystery hidden throughout the ages. That mystery now revealed is that God would save the world by the blood of His Son, and that His ultimate plan is to spread His rule and reign over all the nations by making them His nations and His people, not by making them come into the nation of Israel first. So for our purposes in this series, one of the things I want all of you catechized in, so to speak, is this knowledge of what the mystery is in Ephesians 3. So if I were to call you at 3 o'clock in the morning and say, what is the mystery revealed that the Apostle Paul was given to preach? You're ready, church, with two words. You got it? Gentile inclusion. That's the, whole, that's the whole thing, okay? So if I call you at 3 am, what's the mystery that Paul was given to preach? You say?, Be- beautiful, beautiful. Okay. That is Paul's message. That, that is the mystery that he's, that's the mystery that's been revealed. The mystery that was not clear in the ages past that after the cross of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit and so on, it has now been revealed, has now been made known. The Lord is grafting in every nation into his covenant promises and making a bigger, grander Israel than Israel ever dreamed. Verse 8 of our text this morning, Paul speaks of the unsearchable riches of Christ, which is the title of the sermon. It's the it's the sort of central, uh, the, the 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 center that I I pray will hold throughout this sermon, and we'll keep coming back to it. What I want you to notice is that what's going on here. Paul says the mystery has been revealed, and you can be certain about it. You can know what it is and be certain about it. You can confess it, but also that it's unsearchable, unsearchable riches. You can know the mystery, but good luck finding the bottom of the riches. And you want to ask, well. Well, which is it? Can I know the depths of the mystery of the plans of God, or are His works unsearchable? And it is both. We speak of what God has done with both a confident awareness and a humble confession that much of it is beyond our grasp. The Lord's mysterious ways, which are His, which He's not revealed, are unknowable. But He's made much of it known. So we're going to try to know what He would have us to know. The Lord's wisdom is unfathomable, so we're going to try to fathom just a tiny bit of it. The Lord's riches are unsearchable, so we're going, to, we're going to search just the outer edges. The point is that what God has revealed in His Word is a wealth of glory that we will always be exploring and never be exhausting. So, this morning we will behold, we will look at what God has done and what it means. First, we'll look at what God has done for Paul. Paul himself talks about it in our text. Then we'll talk about what God has done with His church and what He does in and through His church. And then third, we'll talk about what it means for us. And so we'll begin. What has God done for Paul? Join me again at verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of His power. To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So Paul begins here by by referring to his own testimony. I was made a minister of this gospel. I'm responsible to reveal this mystery. and, And dear saints, that mystery is... Gentile inclusion, well done, well done. And Paul says that his message for the Gentiles is a message of unsearchable riches. Indeed, Paul knows that God's riches are unsearchable because Paul knows that God the Father, by the blood of Jesus, makes preachers out of persecutors. One of the things you notice about Paul, the more you read his letters, is that Paul loved to tell his own story of what God had done in his life. Paul loved to tell his, we would call it his conversion testimony. Paul loved to tell that story. He keeps repeating it or referring to it in a lot of his letters. But the more carefully you read him, the more you also find he wasn't just telling his story out of some cathartic need to share his heart. Like all honest storytellers, Paul's stories have a point, have a a purpose, have an agenda. And the agenda is Paul wants to put God's power and word on on display that's the purpose of Paul telling his story he wants to by his testimony by what God did give you a sense of what sort of God this is okay which is what a testimony is for right Paul says look what God has done with me look at uh, verse 7 he's made me a minister by his grace he's changed me by his power I'm the least of all the saints now that sort of makes you stop and say so you're you're what now? <laughs> what does he mean? Paul calling himself the least. Well, he can't mean the least educated. We know Paul was well educated. He can't mean least in terms of endurance. He Paul was a steady man if there ever was one. He's writing this from prison, don't forget. He can't mean least in faith. Paul had a strong and confident faith in Christ. He can't mean least in terms of reputation. He seems to have been, broadly speaking, well-respected until until he comes to Christ. He can't mean least in civic status. Paul was, after all, a natural-born Roman citizen, which he used frequently to his advantage. So is this false modesty? Well, again, no. False modesty or false humility, if it really is false, is just a fancy way of lying. Paul's not lying. So, in what sense then is he the least? Well, I think this text actually shows us that he means something akin to those superlatives that you sometimes hear uh, high school seniors giving to each other or given by their teachers, right? Most likely to succeed, most likely to start a business. Most likely to sustain a severe injury after being dared to do something stupid, right? (laughs) Paul's intention in our passage this morning is to put the glory of God on display. So he says, God has revealed the mystery that through the blood of Christ, He's grafting in Gentiles into this covenant tree. And I am the least likely candidate to be the herald, the preacher, the revealer of this mystery. I am the only guy in history to come face to face with Jesus and get labeled his, that is Jesus' persecutor. Do you remember that? Acts chapter 9. Paul meets the resurrected Christ. He falls to the ground. He hears a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, if you didn't hear me the first time. Paul says, I'm the least of all the saints, by which I think he means I am the least likely guy to get appointed for this job. But here we are. Look at what God has done with me. See, your salvation and all that God has done since then, frankly, are meant to show off God. That's what we mean when we say it's for God's glory. It's the only time we are called to say, look at me, is when you're saying, look at what God's done. And that's not only reserved for people with high drama testimonies, right? All of us can say, there have been vexing sins in my life that the Lord has broken, or is in the process of breaking. So that's what God has done with Paul. He's made his testimony an excuse to point to his glory. As Paul is charged with this gospel to the Gentiles. Next, what God has done with his church. Look at verse 10. So that, so here's the purpose statement so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So Paul says that God has hidden this mystery so that when it gets revealed through the church, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places will conclude that God is wise. Now that's, that's interesting, right? That, that we we, we kind of have the sense we want to unpack that a little. What is he talking about? Well, one of the things hinted at in the Bible, but never really fully opened up and revealed as much as you might like, as much as I might like, is what God has done is, is this statement. So I'm, I'm going to state it plainly and say this is true we're just not given a whole lot of information about it. And so here's the statement. What God has done for all humanity in Christ, in history, has left the angels astonished. Okay, I'm stating that as just a, just a kind of flat propositional reality that the Bible points at, but doesn't give us a whole lot of information about. So, spirit beings, principali- the terminology used here, principalities, authorities, rulers... In the heavenly places. Think about it this way. Spiritual beings, by which I mean angels and demons. Know what it is to love and worship God. Or in the case of demons, to to hate and despise Him. They know what that is. They know what it is to be charged with responsibilities. Authority and responsibility go together. Or to be cast out for rebellion. But do you know what the angels don't know about? They don't know what it is to be forgiven. They don't know what it is to be redeemed. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he says this, "...concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating," When he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced, there's that mystery being revealed, to you through uh, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. What is Peter talking about? Well, He's talking about the gospel. again, like Paul, he's talking about the limited understanding that the Old Testament saints had of the mystery. And like Paul, he mentions this leaves the angels in wonder. So let's go back to our text, Ephesians 3:10, where Paul says that God did this in order to display to, to put on display his manifold wisdom: Two angels by building a church. God has decided, let me put it this way, God has decided to awe the angels by building a church out of saved sinners from every nation. God has decided to leave the angels in awe by building a church out of saved sinners from every nation. Did you know that you were angelic entertainment? Or at the very least, they're in wonder at what God has done with you. God has decided to make traitors into preachers tax collectors into martyrs fishermen into heralds so that he can get all the angels around and he says to them get a look at this beautiful freak show that i've made and what i want you to do with this is to recognize that your stories are meant to strengthen the faith of others it's what i just got done saying but i'm gonna say it again that's why we have a church where god gathers in all these people together, part of the purpose is so we can tell our stories to each other. They leave the angels in awe. How much more should we be amazed at what God has done with us and with others around us? So tell your stories. When you are at Wednesday night suppers, when you linger in here after the benediction, when you meet together to pray, when you're in each other's homes for no other reason than you want to be, share the stories. Talk about what God has done, is doing even if you're not totally sure about all the details yet i mean hold it with an open hand here's what i mean hold your story and its meaning with an open hand a lot of false teaching hides in stories kind of like a baked in poison if what i mean is if what your story says about you and god contradicts what god says about you and god your story needs some editorial revision <laughs> but that's not bad all great stories benefit from a good editor, but your story is meant to be told because God uses it to build up the body, to encourage others, to astonish angels at what He's doing with you. It's For many of you, it's a story that has no shortage of affliction and trouble, trial, a lot of it unexpected, and maybe even a lot of it you're trying to sort out. How much of it is my sin? How much of it is not? You might, never, you might never get the answer to that math equation. But what God is doing in you and with you is for you and will be for the help of others as well. If God means for His work to leave angels speechless, how much more should we weaponize it to leave us doubtless about who He is and what He's doing? And so, the third point, so what God has done for Paul, what God has done for the church and in the church, and then third, what this means for us, if you'll look at verse 11. This was, all of this work that God has done, this was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. First thing I want you to notice about these verses and this is a bit of an aside, but I, so I kind of want to get it out of the way, is that Paul calls this work of Jesus, the Father's eternal purpose. There was a false teaching popularized in the 1800s. It is starting to die, but the teaching went something like this. God did His best in the Old Testament to make something out of Israel, but the whole plan ended up being a total failure. Israel really messed the whole thing up, and so God in heaven then said, well, gosh, that failed. Now what am I going to do? Oh, I know. I'll send my son. That'll fix it. So this, this false teaching says God really wanted that plan A to work. If only Israel had behaved themselves, there would have been no need for the plan B for Jesus. You know, But because Israel dropped the ball, God has to go to plan B. It's a real bummer. No. Absolutely not. All of the no. This, this plan of God in Christ to redeem His true Israel once and for all, has always been the plan A. It was, verse 11, and is the eternal purpose of our Father. The eternal purpose of our Father. Secured and sealed in our hearts by His Holy Spirit. This really matters. Because what it means is that God's plan A has always included us. I mean I mean you. I mean people in this room. Right here at 4900 Jackson Street. Plan A has always included us. God has always been for us. He's always about, been about creating in Christ a covenant family from every tribe and tongue and nation. What is then this great mystery that's been revealed? What's the great mystery that's been revealed? Gentile inclusion. And Paul says that they were, Gentiles were strangers to the covenants, strangers to the promises, cut off from God, and that they've now been brought near by the blood of Christ. So imagine that. Imagine that you are you're a Gentile, pagan, living in Ephesus, going about your business. In due course, you hear the preaching of the gospel. You come to know Jesus, uh, you you, you find Jesus, or rather you are found by Him. You hear that the God of Israel is in fact the Lord of all the nations, and He's brought you in, in spite of all you are. Not only that, but in spite of the fact that you come from a long line of pagan, Yahweh-hating ancestry. Not only have you grown up hating Israel's God, but God-haters have been in your blood for generations. Do you suppose that perhaps that sort of person needs to hear Paul's insistence that being brought near to God grants confident access to the Father? That's what he says. Here's the point. If you're a Christian and you hesitate to go to God with your trouble, with your shame over your sin, with your confusion over your circumstances, with your frustration and maybe exhaustion with your afflictions, with your grief over your disappointments, don't forget what kind of God you have. One of the worst inventions, this is a bit of meddling, One of the worst inventions of Roman Catholicism is the idea that you're better off going to someone other than Jesus in order to get to Jesus. That might sound like humility, right? Oh, who am I to go to Jesus? Until you realize Jesus has commanded you to come to Jesus. It is a grave sin to try to be nicer than God gentler than god more humble than what god has prescribed you to be it is a great sin to clothe disobedience in humility we come to god in prayer we come to god in corporate worship right why because he's called us in it's why we start you know it's why we start our worship service with the call to worship don't miss that we don't show up here cuz god needs something from us We don't even, listen, we don't even primarily show up because we need something from God. No, we do. We do, but that's not the primary reason. We show up because God has called us in. Gathered worship is not, well, you know, I've been feeling a little down lately. I kind of need a good Jesus fix. I haven't gotten it for a few weeks. It's probably time. Hopefully they'll sing the song I like so I can really get my buzz. (laughs) You have confused Jesus with a recreational drug. So it is not, I need my Jesus fix every once in a while. It's not even primarily, well, well I don't need Him once in a while. I need it every week, okay? Or, or I need the Lord's Supper this week. You, you do. I'm not saying you don't. You do need that. But your felt need of it is not the primary reason we gather, beloved. We gather because God has said, come. And we say, yes, sir, Lord and Master, We come boldly and confidently before God in worship and in prayer, not because God needs anything from us, not because God owes us anything, but because that's how well-loved sons come to their Father with their needs, with that bold confidence. Paul says that God has given to us the unsearchable riches of Christ, So so that we might act like sons. You see, the, the boldness and confidence that Paul talks about in the text, the boldness and confidence, the access that we have to God is not, well, now I have the status to start making demands. It is rather, once you understand that your father has limitless riches, you will not fear to ask for what you cannot afford. Right? And that's not a prosperity wacko bit. That's just saying God owns everything and there's not a request that's too big for him to handle. Unsearchable riches are his department. So as I start to wrap this up, I want you to listen to verse 13. If you go to verse 13, this is Paul's last sentence in our passage this morning. He finishes the thought by saying this. So I ask you, imagine like all that he said here about the mystery revealed to the Gentiles about how they are they are, they are brought in by their father they have uh, this has been done through the church this mystery has been revealed so God can show off in front of the angels and in front of all creation what he's done with you therefore we, we we boldly have access to our father so I ask you Paul says not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you which is your glory now that's interesting isn't it it immediately makes you want to ask I mean my first question when I read that was What is it about Paul's suffering that would cause them to lose heart or get discouraged? Why does he need to give them comfort? I mean, sure, like God's apostle to the Gentiles being imprisoned by the Gentiles might make them a bit confused. But why would they lose heart? Why would they get discouraged? It wasn't obvious to me right away. I think the answer is found in the book of Acts. In the 21st chapter, you see, there we we find that Paul got himself into deep trouble in Jerusalem at one point and a crowd around the temple got stirred up and we find out that they were crying out, men of Israel help, this is the man, Paul, who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place, the temple. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. That was the charge, right? This guy, Paul, has brought unclean Gentiles into the holy place in the temple in Jerusalem. He has defiled the temple. And look at the next verse. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Not just a Gentile, but an Ephesian. That's interesting. Paul is in trouble for bringing an Ephesian into the temple to worship with Jews. Now, this verse in Acts seems to indicate this was at worst a lie or at best a misunderstanding. And and so the charge was probably unjust. What's interesting though is they were charging him with, with the sort of behavior that might just result from someone believing God had expanded His covenant family in such a way as to leave the angels in shock. And for that reason, on the basis of that accusation, He's put in chains. And if you've read the rest of Acts, you know he's eventually extradited to Rome. And then here we join our heroes, right? Now he's in prison. And what's the charge? He loved those Gentiles too much and he brought an Ephesian into the temple. To, To help you get at that, I want you to imagine something with me. Many of you remember for a number of months praying for Andrew Brunson, missionary who was imprisoned in Turkey, uh, who was eventually released, God be praised. Well, imagine that one of you from, from Grace Presbyterian Church in Alexandria gets connected with Andrew and you go on a foreign mission trip with him, but you make some mistakes in your visa travel arrangements. And at first everything is fine, but when the time is finished and you're at the airport and Andrew's with you seeing you off, and the visa irregularity is found, and Andrew, who let's not forget has a criminal record, gets charged with aiding an American spy or something like that. You get immediately deported. He gets dragged off to prison. Again. What kind of guilt would you feel? I mean, sure the charges are unjust, but I mean, I, I think I think what I would go through is like. What was I even doing there in the first place? How could I have been so stupid? He's in there because of me. How would we feel here at Grace? Everybody's heard of Grace Alexandria. (laughs) That's the church of the guy who got Andrew Brunson put back in prison. Can you sort of imagine that the Ephesians feel a little bit embarrassed about what happened back in Jerusalem? That idiot Trophimus. If he had just let Paul go by himself, maybe he could have enjoyed a nice fish sandwich a quarter mile from the temple and none of this stupid stuff would have ever happened and Paul would not be in prison. And Paul says, if we can go back to our text, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Now what I've just done is taken that instance in Acts and followed it up here to the letter to the Ephesians. That's, a, that's I'm convinced, I'm convinced of it, but I'm, I'm freely acknowledging that uh, it's not as sort of clear and easy to nail down as some of the other points I've made here. But I, I either way, whether this is talking about that incident or not, though I think it is, Paul is saying, "Are you embarrassed for me?" Are you embarrassed for me that I'm sitting here in prison? You know what you should be doing? You should be bragging. This is your glory. That Jesus Christ is for you in everything. And for me in everything, even these chains. Because the God of unsearchable riches is also the God of unsearchable wisdom and he knows exactly what he's doing. He's never moved one square inch away from accomplishing plan A of conquering every single nation in the world by the blood-bought forgiveness of his son through faith in the gospel of grace which I, Paul of all people, was made a minister and I, the least of all his saints, am in prison because this is how the God of unsearchable riches is going to win. So don't lose heart. Don't get discouraged. This is the plan. This is your glory. May God give us eyes to see all of our afflictions and even all of our failures in such a light. In the name of Jesus. Amen. And so our Father, we thank you for the words from the Apostle Paul where he says, uh, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Thereby we can observe the apostolic example set by Paul our brother and imitate it. To the glory of Jesus who means to manifest and make known and make seen and make heard His glory through the work of ordinary people ordinary churches ordinary sufferers wearing ordinary chains bearing ordinary burdens and afflictions trials difficulties and in these things he says this is your glory and so lord we need faith we need the eyes of faith to see and believe that even in the midst of our sufferings you are at work when we don't feel this give us the strength and the grace to confess it and when we don't even feel like we have that feed us here at this table with that very strength in jesus name amen